Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 189. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm looking at a couple of things but mostly around one movie and that is Words and Music, a 1948 biopic of the life of Lorenz Hart. It stars Mickey Rooney, Tom Drake and a host of MGM musical stars and dancing stars as well. Uh, but it's got an interesting sociological context around it, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and about what went wrong with words and music and why it's not regarded well among MGM musicals and yet um, has lots of interesting things to show us the changes that have happened in society since 1948. So sit back, I'm going to get the contact details out of the way and start the show. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode has to talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Hey people, um, I'm recording this late on a Wednesday afternoon, which is incredibly unusual for a Paleo Cinema podcast, or indeed for a Martian Drive-In podcast. Um, we're doing it because this weekend I'm off to Continuum 12, the local science fiction convention, and a Paleo Cinema podcast is due on the weekend. There's no way I'm going to take time out from a four-day science fiction convention to record another podcast, even though I am doing Martian Drive-In podcasts live at the convention. So this one's being recorded on a Wednesday evening, a very soggy and cold and miserable Wednesday evening. Sally has promised to call out for pizza, so dinner's taken care of, and I can podcast in peace. So there hasn't been much happening around here, no dramas, no wonderful experiences. We're still muscling our way through the Australian federal election campaign which has got to the stage where everyone's fucking over it and would really like it to just happen so we can have our sausage sizzle at the election booth and <laughs> vote for who we want to run the country for the next three years and just get it done. I don't know how Americans put up with that stupid election system that you guys seem to have where the people on one side fight it out between themselves and then bitch and moan about each other. But when they ultimately select a candidate, they do a 180 and start bitching about the guy on the other side of the fence. Seems silly, doesn't make a lot of sense to other people on other parts of this clay and granite planet, but that's what you guys have chosen to do, so do it. Um, if you're thinking of voting for Donald Trump, you have a very erroneous idea of what the word thinking means. I suggest you watch All the King's Men and A Face in the Crowd and a few other of those very pointed political dramas, and maybe Triumph for the Will as well, before you vote, because um, even from this distance, that guy is a shocker. If 
he can't be honest about his own head, how can he be honest about everything else? Though we're not much better, the two we've got aren't very inspiring. There are some minor party politicians and also kind of minor politicians who are much more interesting and have some cogent things to say about the state of things. But the main guys are playing it so careful because it's the votes split about 50-50 at the moment according to the polls. So both sides are trying to be so careful while still pointing their finger and whinging about the other side that um, it's just, you know, the people that are adults now who grew up doing media studies at school, they can tell this bullshit. One of the problems our political class has across the world is very simply teenagers and millennials and people in their 20s no media inside out. They can tell the bullshit when they see it. They know social media better than anybody over the age of 40 ever will. And I kind of do okay for a baby boomer when it comes to playing with social media, but um, I've only just started a Snapchat account and I'm not sure quite what I'm going to do with it yet, which is the stage one of any ad- adoption of new social media. Uh, I like Instagram. I'm having a bit of fun with Instagram across posting it to um, Facebook, which is the old farts version of social media. But um, yeah, the, there are very, very media savvy young people up and coming, and it's having an impact on their engagement with standard politics. This is going to get a little political for a while, so bear with me or fast forward five minutes. And I find that kind of interesting. Um, I like watching new media. I like watching BuzzFeed Australia, which is taking a look at Australian politics from a totally different angle. I like what's happening with the media engagement on Guardian Australia. And, um, yeah, I think um, there are old school journalists who are adopting social media and changing the way journalism is. And there are others who are just kind of sitting on their ass and whinging about it until they finally get a redundancy and get sacked from the gig they've had for the last 40 years. Nonetheless, um, the world's an interesting place, and interesting things keep happening. And so I look forward to seeing what this change in the way people perceive media, including movies. I mean, I can roll movies back into this. But that that change in which media is perceived by people is very important and is going to shift society in, in a number of different directions i think the threat of things is um disengagement from the political process means that certain hardcore interests of the left or the right get their way and that's not necessarily the best way things can go but um anyway that's my media rant and my political rant for the moment i'm a bit fed up with it but i like living in a place where i can actually vent and rant and talk about this stuff in ostensibly a movie podcast, of course, and I'm passionate about certain things like this. Uh, I've been podcasting for a bit over 10 years now, off and on, and in various ways, and I still get awed by the whole medium of podcasting. And that's probably a good place to be and a, and a good way to be, because you, if you're still kind of wow about something after 10 years, then you're open to it, and you're open to changes in it. And I kind of like that. I like not being the kind of grumpy person who posts personal message on Facebook to all of their friends when they should go to one of their friends. And there's a lot of that shit out there. And it annoys the fuck out of me. And I've had a go at a few people about it, but they just don't seem to get it. Anyway, moving right along. Movies. What have I been watching? Not a lot because I only podcasted a couple of days ago. 
so I haven't had a lot of time to play around. I have um, downloaded a TV show from about five years ago, which is kind of interesting and relates to the last Paleo Cinema podcast in a way. And in fact, I heard about it through the research I did for the last Paleo Cinema podcast, the one where I discussed Behind the Green Door, Deep Throat and the Devil in Miss Jones. And it's a um, Showtime series which went to seasons uh, around 2010-2011 called Dave's Old Porn and where David Teller, an American comedian, talks with various people, some comedians, some old classic porn stars, some new porn stars, and they sit down with, watch a VHS movie, uh, an old porn movie, and kind of discuss it and talk about it. They have Ron Jeremy on to talk about some movies he did, and that kind of thing. And it, it was interesting from a sociological viewpoint as well. They don't show you the hardcore scenes. In fact, they put the people sitting on the couch talking over the um, squidgy bits while they're talking about it there's some nudity and some titillating stuff but mostly it's a kind of analytical and um, gently mocking look at 1970s and 1980s adult movies and it's kind of fun I mean you don't want to watch too many episodes at once otherwise you'd go mad but I like the approach and I like the fact that they're treating these kind of films as something that's worth studying and they're not doing serious sociological studies on it and they're not doing dissertations and degrees on this shit they're just kind of talking about it talking about what's good about it what's not good about it what they like about it what's silly in various ones so you know they're kind of almost podcasting video podcasting about adult films and i've kind of enjoyed it watched two episodes of it so far and it's a little bit of fun. So that is Dave's Old Porn, which is a Showtime series. It is on Torrent, so you can find it that way. The only other couple of things I've watched, I've watched Election, the 1995, 1999, sorry, Alexander Payne movie starring Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick because Liz Travaskis and I are doing a season of political movies for the ABC local radio Northern Territory gig. And I like it. I mean, I hate the Tracy Flick character, the character that um, Reese Witherspoon plays in it. I hate that character with a passion, which is supposed to be the way it's supposed to be, obviously. Uh, I found out that the book on which Election's based is actually a, a kind of variation on a movie, a book I wish they had have turned into a movie by Bud Schulberg, who also wrote A Face in the Crowd. And that um, book is what makes Sammy run which was done as a kind of bowdlerized TV um, thing in the 1950s and it was made into a musical in the late 1950s but it was never made into a movie and there's a crowdfunding attempt to get it made into a movie at the moment I'm not sure whether how successful they're being but it's really about that kind of sociopathic focused self-entitled person getting ahead and that's very much what Election's about. Um, I like the movie a lot. I'm not going to watch it too often because I'm kind of at a stage right now, just at this very moment, when main characters in movies that annoy me really annoy me. So I'm kind of backing off from that and going with some comfort films in just for a little while until you know, my palate clears and I can go back to looking at really nasty characters that I hate with a passion. And I may well go back to election at that stage. But um, I, it's going to have a few things I could talk about on the radio tomorrow night when Liz and I discuss it. We'll fill the 20, 25 minutes quite well with it. The only other thing I've watched is Mario Barva's Lisa and the Devil, 
starring Ilka Summer and Telly Savalas. Now, this is a movie I kind of want to like, but uh, even though it does have kind of giallo aspects to it and horror aspects to it, I don't think it holds together very well. I know it was re-edited and um, bits were added to it for the American edition, which um, was basically a, a piece of shit. But um, I've actually got the Australian Blu-ray of this, which has both editions on it, and I've only watched the original one, um, which is kind of, you know, there, there are bits of it interesting, and Mario Bava's movies are always visually stimulating, but I don't think the movie really works. It doesn't have a coherent mythology to it. The horror parts don't really hold together because we don't quite know what the fuck's going on at any stage, at any time during this movie. Um, and Telly Zavalas is a lot of fun he's very stylish and kind of mannered in it um, Alita Valley's in it as well who was also in The Third Man but uh, I probably want to give it one more go maybe before the end of the year I'll give it one more go and just see if I can make it gel but for me at the moment it just doesn't anyway I'm going to take a break now and when I get back, I'm going to play a bit of the music from Words of Music and also talk about it. First off, I'm going to talk about the movie of itself, this fictionalised biography of Larry, Larry Hart, Lorenz Hart. Then I'm going to talk about the things that are wrong with it in a much wider context. And I'll explain what I mean when I get back. You don't know that I felt good when we up and parted You don't know I knocked on wood Gladly broken hearted is through I sleep all night Appetite and health restored You don't know how much we're born Sleepless nights, the daily fights, the quick toboggan when you reach the heights. I miss the kisses and I miss the bites. I wish I were in love again. The broken dates, the endless waits, the lovely loving and the hateful hates, the conversation with the flying plates. I wish I were in love again. No more pain. No more strain. Now I'm saying bye. Rather be gone, gone. The pulled out fur of Captain Kerr. The fine mismating of a him and her. We've, We've learned, learned our lesson, lesson and we wish we were in love again. The furtive sigh, the blackened eye, the words I'll love you till the day I die. The self deception that believes the lie. Again. When love congeals, it soon reveals the fade aroma of performing seals, the double crossing of a pair of eels. I wish I were in love again, no more care, no despair. I'm all there now, but I'd rather be punched from Believe me, sir, I much prefer the classic battle of a him and her. We, we don't, don't like quiet, quiet and we wish we were in love.
that of course is I Wish I Were In Love Again sung by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney a wonderful pain to mutual domestic violence it was the last cinematic pairing of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland in the 1948 movie Words of Music directed by Norman Torog it's an MGM musical biopic and the main stars of it are Tom Drake starring as Richard Rogers the um Musician who later went on to work with Oscar Hammerstein, but at the time was known as Rogers and Hart with Lorenz Hart, played by Mickey Rooney. Now, they're the two main characters. There are also other characters played by Perry Como, Betty Garrett, Janet Lee, and a host of other MGM um, stars. The movie was made not too long. I'll have to work out exactly how long. Five years after the death of Larry Hart, who died in 1943. And um, the weird thing, this is a, a weird movie in a number of ways, but it's a kind of standard hagiography kind of biopic that MGM did at the time. It was being run at the time by Louis B. Mayer, who had this weird idea of what entertainment should be, in that he thought that it should be wholesome and that all the family should watch every piece of entertainment and that you didn't want to do anything edgy, you didn't want to do anything controversial. You just wanted to give people something that would make them happy when they came out of the cinema. It was a very old-fashioned viewpoint, even at the time, and ultimately led to um, some failures by MGM. But also, in the meantime, um, a lot of people were kind of crushed by this stupid vision that um, Louis B. Mayer had for what America and by association the world needed in entertainment now Rogers and Hart's music was incredibly popular for at least 25 years before the movie was ever made the list of songs that Rogers and Hart wrote together is mind-blowingly good the catalogue of them is fantastic uh, they they wrote Manhattan Mountain Greenery, Blue Moon, uh, just a ton of songs. They were crazily popular together, and that's the reason MGM, having uh, got the rights to Rogers and Hart's musicals, decided that uh, five years after Larry Hart died, uh, by which time uh, Richard Rogers was again famous doing things with his new collaborator and his new lyricist, Oscar Hammerstein III. So chances are they were going to have a very successful movie by doing a biopic of Larry Hart and by association Richard Rogers. Um, between the death of um, Larry Hart and the movie being made, Rogers and Hammerstein had already established themselves as fantastically successful, even though there hadn't yet been any movies made of their collaborations. By 1948, they'd done Oklahoma, Carousel, State Fair, Allegro, which is not a well-known one of their musicals, but it's one that has some really, really good songs in it. Um, and they were just about to open up with one of their really biggest hits, which was, of course, was South Pacific, based on Tales of the South Pacific by James A. Michener, of which I have a copy up on the shelf here. The plot of the biopic's pretty simple. Um, Richard Rogers gets together with an eccentric songwriter, um, lyricist called Larry Hart, who lives in a house with his mother. And um, he's a short guy, he's neurotic, he's kind of a ball of energy and runs around. He's a very, very good lyricist. And between them, they become successful. Um, they have some falling out because Larry's got a tendency to disappear for prolonged periods of time and not meet deadlines. He's got a problem with alcohol, he's got a problem with his height. 
in the movie, he's got a problem with unsuccessful romances. He's wooing a character played by um, Betty Garrett for most of the movie, tremendously unsuccessfully. And he eventually um, deteriorates because of the alcoholism and the self-doubts and gets pneumonia, goes to the theatre to see one of their plays and drops dead. In between, there's a, a bit in Hollywood where they um, start doing stuff for movies and become very successful there. Um, in the meantime, Richard Rogers marries the character played by a very young Janet Lee, who's very good in the movie too. And um, yeah, they, they hang out with various friends, characters, which I think they may be either underwritten to the max or there are bits taken out of the film. But the Cicerese character and the character played by Perry Como kind of they have some kind of a romance and a relationship but it's kind of almost a shorthand version of a subplot where there's bits that we don't know about go okay well they're a couple oh yes they're on stage now and she's flashing an engagement ring so they must be a couple and they're going to be married and you know there's that kind of sketching in of detail which is kind of sloppy there's also other stuff that kind of doesn't really work um at one stage Richard Rogers, the Tom Drake character, goes to see Camille starring Robert Taylor, which was in 1936, ten years after the this part of the movie is supposed to be set. And so they cut the 1936 version of Camille rather than the silent edition. It was a silent movie version of Camille. So they cut the sound version with Robert Taylor to look like a silent film. And then they've got bits where... Judy Garland comes in and does a cameo as Judy Garland to sing Johnny One Note and I Wish I Were In Love Again in collaboration with Mickey Rooney playing the part of Larry Hart. Now, and she's, she's introduced as Judy Garland, so she's not playing another person. Problem is that that part of the movie, chronologically, Judy Garland wouldn't be seven and a half years old. So this is a dog's breakfast it's all over the place there are anachronisms people in the 1920s in the movie dressed like people in the 1940s and there was significant difference in costuming at the time um you know what people wore wardrobe uh it's just kind of all over the place from that point of view it was very very successful but also very very expensive to make so it didn't really make a lot of money for mgm but that's the bits around the edges that's the kind of frame for what people really went to this movie to see which is really good film stars and and actors doing Rogers and Hart songs and I like the musical numbers, they're really good Um, there's a bit from Connecticut Yankee with June Allison singing Thou Swell which is really a lot of fun, Uh, Betty Garrett does a short version of Way Out West um, a Rogers and Hart kind of novelty song and Southern, later to be notorious as the voice of the car in the TV series My Mother the Car, comes out as um, Joyce Harmon, one of the Broadway stars who sings um, a Rogers and Hart song for it. Uh, there's Lena Horne doing Where or When, which is fantastic. And she also does a version of Lady is The Lady is a Tramp and blows things away she's not actually related she never interacts with anybody else in the movie because she's a a woman of color and of course um they didn't want to alienate the southern audience so anything with lena horn in it was cut out when the movie was distributed in the south which is the kind of bullshit they did then but lena horn is fantastic in the film um kind of really putting the song across she's beautiful sexy 
spot on with the singing and, and really charismatic in there. There's a ballet with Vera Ellen and Gene Kelly based on Slaughter on 10th Avenue, which re- works really well. And that's a prolonged sequence, which is really interesting. And um, take, rather than having somebody dancing and singing, just having the pure dance part does provide a kind of breather there. So the movie, it's a movie that should have worked a lot better than it did, but because the focus for the people making the film was the songs and the, obviously it's in the title, words and the music, the kind of scripting around that and the frame around that and the fact that they're trying to tell ostensibly tell the story of this guy's life really doesn't work. It's there's an internal inconsistency in it. The anachronisms are pretty glaring. The there are bits with Judy Garland which are kind of really weird in a way because she does I wish I were in love again and then walks over to another part of the garden in which she's singing during this garden party. And suddenly she's about five pounds heavier and her hair's longer because they filmed it eight months later. And then she sings Johnny One Note and her costuming is slightly different. They took the belt off her dress because um, she gained a little weight. So there's that that kind of inconsistency that you can notice in there. Now, the director of the film was Norman Torog, who started out in silent movies and did a lot of musical films going up until the late 1960s, in fact. Yeah, he started out in uh, 1920, let's see, wow, earlier than I thought, did short films in 1920 and then um, moved along and became a part of MGM and did a lot of their kind of light movies, Toast of New York, Rich, Young and Pretty, um, The Caddy, he did um, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movies, The Caddy and Partners and things like that and then moved on to do several Elvis Presley movies, including G.I. Blues, that happened at the World Fair, Blue Hawaii, Spin Out, Speedway, and Live a Little, Love a Lot. And in the meantime, managed to also direct Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, starring Vincent Price. So, um, Norman Torog, pretty good director. In fact, he's the only movie director in real life that was name-checked in the Coen Brothers' recent film, Hail Caesar wasn't particularly distinguished. He was a kind of jobbing studio director who knew his job but didn't draw attention to his himself in the way some other directors did. But uh, this movie kind of works in, in some ways but just doesn't work in other ways. One of the, There are a few problems with the casting as well. Tom Drake is a bit of a null as um, Richard Rogers, whereas Rogers was a much more interesting person in real life and a much more complex person. He wasn't the Boy Scout um, with a couple of flaws that Tom Drake is forced to portray him as. And, of course, Tom Drake looks nothing like Richard Rogers actually did. Richard Rogers was singularly ugly. Then you've got the problem with Larry Hart. Now, Larry Hart does not look at all like Mickey Rooney. In fact, he looks more like Stanley Tucci without the wig. None, well, short Stanley Tucci without the wig. Maybe they cast Mickey Rooney because he was the only short guy who could sing and dance in Hollywood at the time and who was under contract to MGM. And Mickey Rooney, his skills picked up later when he did more character roles, but at the time, his, his Larry Hart doesn't really work. Um, it, it's almost like watching Mickey Rooney playing a character in a Mickey Rooney 
and Judy Garland musical. It's got that kind of artificiality about it when he's supposed to do the grim and serious. And there's a key change to the character that's really odd. He starts out at one stage as kind of exuberant, over-the-top, outrageous, imaginative, creative to the max and all that kind of thing. And then suddenly all the self-doubts are suddenly there and the alcoholism suddenly there and the disappearing and the going into hospital and all that. There's no kind of transition between the two except for a sharp cut. And it really doesn't work. So that's the problem. Mickey Rooney doesn't look anything like the character and he's, except in the song of dance numbers and in the kind of non-serious pattery bits. He's not out of his depth in those, but he's out of his depth in the rest of the movie. But I like a lot of the song and dance numbers in Words of Music. They really do work. They're among some of my favourites of the time, even though um, there are the choreography is sometimes a little bit lax and not as tight as it was in some other films, particularly ones that Stanley Donovan did with Gene Kelly and things like that. Later on, they sharpen those things up a lot, but this is still in the 1940s before that kind of peak era of the MGM musical right into the early 1950s. But at least it doesn't have something silly like that uh, to collage roll by where you've got Frank Sinatra in a white tuxedo on a pedestal singing Old Man River. It doesn't have any of that level of absurdity to it, but it it's kind of works in some ways. Now, I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, I'm going to tell you the real story of Larry Hart and Richard Rogers. <laughs> Yeah. 
That was Peggy Lee's version of Rogers and Hart's song, Lover. Now, when Richard Rogers heard Peggy Lee's version of that song, he was furious. He didn't like it at all. He said that it should be sung as a waltz, and if she wanted to fuck something up, why didn't she fuck up Silent Night? So he was really unhappy with it. But from my perspective, I like Peggy Lee's version of it. I like the fact that they took an old kind of staid waltz, nice song, but a waltz, and turn it into something new and exciting with the kind of rumba beat to it. It really kind of works well for me. One thing I didn't say about words of music that I really liked is at the garden party that Larry Hart has where he and Judy Garland sing in the movie Words of Music, the band leader comes down and says, what do you want to hear? All the guests have left and Larry's sitting there by himself. And the band leader is Mel Torme. And Mel Torme does a really cool, smooth crooner version of Blue Moon, which I really like. By the way, the version of the Blue Moon done by the Marcells in the late 1950s wasn't too Richard Rogers liking either. He really hated that version of it as well. Didn't like people messing around with his songs very much. Which leads me into the truth about Richard Rogers and Larry Hart. Um, I'll talk about Larry Hart first because he's obviously the focus of words and music. In real life, Larry Hart was short, so we've got that much in bald and depressed. So all of those things are accurate to the movie. But in real life, Larry Hart was gay. He um, kept the company secretly, of course, of male prostitutes and chorus boys and things like that. And that side of his life was hidden and he'd go away and binge um, on gay relationships short term of course in various places he'd go to Mexico and spend weeks there and nobody can get in touch with him and he'd come back again uh, it was who he was I mean a lot of people said that he got rejected romantically and so he became gay but that was being discredited by the fact that it's bullshit and you know homosexuality is not a choice and um, of course during the time that was one of the few ways that gay men could live their lives without the threat of imprisonment amongst other things and, and you know societal outcasting and all of that uh, you've got to remember this is the 1930s 20s, 30s and, and 40s and there just wasn't the option for a gay man to live his life openly people did um, Monty Woolley did Cole Porter did but for Larry Hart who was of a nervous disposition anyway and was unfortunately treating his problems by self-medicating with alcohol. He didn't have the front to live his life openly as a gay man. And, of course, none of the papers would particularly touch this until magazines like Confidential came out. Um, it was Homosexuality was invisible in celebrity terms except when underage people were involved. And then, there, of course, there was a big court case. But for the most part, it was kind of visible at the top levels of society and at the top levels of celebrity. So when the time came to for MGM to make their biopic about Larry Hart, they put him through a whole bunch of unsuccessful attempts at romance, mostly with Betty Garrett's character as a way of saying oh, there was nothing wrong with Larry except that he was unhappy in love and depressed and drank too much. 
And this is a phenomenon that we now know as straight washing, where a gay person in a historical movie is portrayed as a straight person. Now, this isn't a movie sitting on its own in the sea of everything else is hunky-dory. There are a bunch of other movies where gay characters were portrayed as straight. But the biggest kind of offender and the most one of the most parallels words of music is Night and Day, the 1946 film. Uh, Warner Brothers did, so it wasn't an MGM movie, but a Warner Brothers movie, where Cary Grant played Cole Porter and Alexis Smith played his wife, Linda. And um, oddly enough, Monty Woolley is in the film playing Monty Woolley, and Monty Woolley was a crony of Cole Porter's and very much a gentleman who didn't hide his sexuality in any way. Um, as indeed Cole Porter didn't for the most part, even though he was married and he did have a platonic and very close relationship with his wife. As the 2004 movie The Lovely, starring Kevin Klein as Cole Porter, um, shows us, uh, and actually Judd playing his wife, that shows us that he, he had that kind of close relationship with her, but ultimately he was gay. The strange thing about the Warner Brothers movie Night and Day is that Alexis Smith, who played his wife Linda in words of music was in real life gay and of course there were all of those rumours and I really can't judge how accurately that Cary Grant and Randolph Scott had a relationship for a long time as well so the weird thing about it if that is the case and again it's it's very iffy as to whether um, Cary Grant was gay or at least bisexual the weird thing about it is he got a movie about a gay man and his straight wife who have a kind of platonic relationship being made in which they're shown as being a heterosexual couple together and the actors playing them are at least bisexual if not gay. So there's a kind of recursiveness to that scripting and that plotting of the movie which makes it kind of strange and if you look at it too deeply you'll fall in and never come out again. But um, straight washing, there's also a more recent version of straight washing. Historically, and historians have been kind of discovering a lot of stuff about American presidents recently. And there is um, a strong theory, and I'm not saying it's 100% accurate, I haven't gone to primary sources on this, that Abraham Lincoln was a, a gay man living a straight life with his wife. And... Um, that is not mentioned in the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, the Steven Spielberg movie. So some people um, have seen that as straight washing of Abraham Lincoln. But there have been other examples of characters who of historic importance who were gay but were shown to be straight. Alexander the Great being another one, any of those Alexander the Great movies up to and including the Richard Burton one in the late 1950s portrayed him as straight and that's not the case historically and also in the culture he was in it wasn't particularly something that people were in a lot of ways binary sexuality is a recent invention even fictional characters um, who were gay or bisexual have been kind of straight washed um, Deadpool the character in the most recent um, superhero um, sleeper film I suppose was as you know was bisexual but in the movie he wasn't in the comics he was in the movie he wasn't john constantine in the comics of constantine was bisexual but in the short-lived but not too bad tv series he was portrayed as being straight there's this history of hollywood in particular 
which isn't being told. I mean, there are historians who've told it. Vito Russo in his um, book, The Set of the Old Closet, and in the 1995 documentary based on the book, there's a lot of stuff about gay Hollywood and how characters were whitewashed and how things were signaled that certain characters were gay in certain movies, all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's really interesting because it is a side of Hollywood that we don't see. There's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff as well about private lives of people in Hollywood. Um, just speaking of one that I've already name-checked and, and shown some of their work in the podcast, there's strong evidence from several sources I have that it was widely known among celebrities in Hollywood that Peggy Lee gave the best blowjobs in Hollywood. Fantastic singer, pretty good actress too in something like Pete Kelly's Blues. But there's also that other side to people that um, we don't see because most of it's none of our business, of course. But with people who have now died, I suppose that then becomes of historical interest and it gives us a context for the society in which they lived. But that whitewashing is, sorry, straight washing, not whitewashing, straight washing is something that Hollywood's done for a very long time and it's now kind of being called out much more than it ever was. And that's a good thing. I mean, diversity makes the possibilities of drama more broad. It A lot of the audience gets to see people of their own sexuality on screen, which is a good thing for kind of people who are finding their own sexuality as young people or for people of mature years who are just fed up with the bullshit. It's good to see a diversity of people of various races and cultures and also of spiritualities. You can't assume, I don't think, in the 21st century that every black American person is Christian because there are Muslim black Americans, there are atheist black Americans, there are Buddhist black Americans, things like that. Um, you can't assume, even though it is very prevalent in Australian indigenous culture, there's the cultural beliefs, but there's also a strong streak of Christianity based on mission stations and things like that. But again, you can't really um, assume anything about people because people are a broad range of things. By the way, while I'm on the subject of Australian Indigenous culture. There's a new series that's just come out. It's on the Sundance Channel in America, and it's on the ABC here in Australia called Clever Man, which is basically set slightly in the future, and it's a superhero TV series based on Aboriginal myths, legends, with a bit of science fiction rolled into it. The cast is about 90% Indigenous Australians, and they are brilliantly good. The writer was is an Indigenous Australian, the director of a number of the episodes. We've got Leah Purcell doing some of them and Wayne Blair. They've got Indigenous directors. It really is a, a breath of fresh air for us to see that kind of thing. And, and this is what we get by being open and inclusive. We get stories that we haven't been hearing and stories that we don't know and stories we find interesting. And removing that kind of barrier between people who come at things from a slightly different viewpoint because of who they are, then I think that that can only enrich and reinforce the, the storytelling culture that we have in on the screen. And the screens, of course, are blending. The movies aren't necessarily the predominant um, delivery system for movies anymore. Cinemas aren't. We now get them streamed to us. We now get them um, on enormous screens in our own houses. And that diversity of storytelling is coming along with that um, diversity of delivery systems for media.
And I, th- I find that great and exciting. There are, of course, people are going to say they don't want to know about that stuff and, and aren't interested and things like that. And that's fine. You don't have to listen to every story that's being told. You don't have to, um, kind of, if you're a person who has strong religious beliefs, you don't have to see a story about people who um, are open in their sexuality and are bisexual or in open relationships. If you don't like that kind of thing, don't see it. Just as if I see a story with a strong Christian theme in it, I tend to get turned off by it as because of who I am. Uh, but what, one of the things that I, I learned from watching Words and Music was that it, it's one of those touchstone movies that tells us how far we've come as a culture. When you couldn't be honest in a biographical pick about a man who'd only died five years ago and about the truth of his life and the tragedy of his life, the fact that he was depressed and um, died of pneumonia and, and drank heavily, as indeed did Richard Rogers. Richard Rogers wasn't a Boy Scout either. He drank heavily and he was also a womanizer. He had an office where he would bring women up two or three times a day to his office in Manhattan just to fuck them. So, you know, the truth of people is much more complex and interesting than is laid out in a MGM musical that basically removed all blemishes like a kind of cinematic Photoshop or what were perceived as blemishes. Most of them are just people being human. But um, the words of music is, is a good touchstone for me in showing that Hollywood, A, can demonstrate, at the time, demonstrated the artistry of people very, very well. The, the kind of you know, the skills and the and the talents and the imagination and the creativity all of that was portrayed really well in Hollywood. The truth of the human being behind that creativity and the, and that product was nearly always hidden by Hollywood and nearly always ignored or found repugnant and changed for the comfort of the audience. And it's nice to be in a time now where that happens less. You don't get the ugly side, or not even ugly, but just the diverse side of human beings removed from any um, viewing by a mass audience. I kind of like the way Lena Horne's scenes in Words of Music were taken out of the prints that was um, shown around the southern states of America because people, uh, white people in the south didn't want to see black people in anything but comic roles in their movies. And having somebody who's kind of standing side by side artistically with white people the way Lena Horne does in Words of Music just wasn't acceptable. Words of Music is a good movie in the scenes of artistry, a bad movie in the scenes of history. And having said that, I'm going to end this podcast. This is a fairly short one as these things go, but I've got a lot to do and not too much time to do it. But again, it's worth seeing from that point of view. And but still don't think it's anywhere near the truth. And um, the same way that Night and Day, because it's got tons of Cole Porter songs, is interesting to watch and to see Cole Porter being played by Cary Grant is a bit ridiculous because Cole Porter too wasn't somebody who was classically beautiful, let's say. But anyway, um, thank you for listening. Uh, This one was kind of patched together at the last minute and I do apologise for that. I'm sure it shows in the way I've carried out the podcast. But uh, the next one will be interesting, the live one that I do uh, 
at Continuum 12 with Grant Watson and Narelle Harris for Martian Driving Podcast. And then I'll be back a week after that with another Paleo Cinema Podcast. So in the meantime, look after yourselves. Take care. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Watch movies with friends. Watch them by yourself. Watch them with your pants off. I don't care. Just watch movies. And I'll be back very soon. And um, I will leave you with another Rogers and Hart song. Oh, by the way, you can watch the full documentary of The Celluloid Closet on YouTube. The whole thing is sitting up there waiting for you to watch it. He's a fool, and don't I know it? But a fool can have his charms I'm in love and don't I show it Like a babe in arms Love's the same old sad sensation Lately I've not slept Since this half-pint imitation Put me on the blink I'm wild again Beguiled again A simpering, whimpering child again
Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our Technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Carrie, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.